So, funnily enough, when I was working on this sermon, I knew it was Palm Sunday this Sunday. Um, and it all revolves around Palm Sunday, but for some reason I forgot when I woke up this morning and on the drive here, even though my sermon is about Palm Sunday. So I walked in there all these Palm Palms, and I was like, oh yeah, it's Palm Sunday. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, I guess that's uh, where I'm at this week. <laughs> If I ever asked you if you'd ever felt out of place or like you didn't match the expectations that people had of you, could you relate to that statement? I certainly have been able to relate to that statement in my life. And I think that most people can say that they have it at some point in their lives. And this looks different in everyone's lives. So for some people, it's, it's big things. Maybe when you were growing up, your parents had specific expectations for your lives or a specific career path or something like that that they wanted you to go down and that didn't fit who you were at all. It just didn't really feel like who you were. Now that wasn't my experience, but I know that for me, um, everyone around me expected that when I enrolled at Maritime Christian College, I would be there for four years, graduate, get my degree, and then move on into a ministry. No one expected me to take 10 years to finish a degree, and many people are surprised to find that A, I haven't finished yet, and I'm still enrolled. <laughs> the, the way I've done my schooling doesn't fit the, the, the typical mold or expectations that people have when someone goes to get a degree at university or college. And I've also experienced this in recent years, explaining to people that, that my goal is bivocational ministry. And often I'll, I'll tell people that I'm going to Holland College for electrical, and I'll, I'll kind of get a comment like, oh, I get, so you didn't decide to go into ministry then. And, and it, it's funny, but the reason they ask this is because someone being both a pastor and an electrician doesn't fit into the mold or the expectations that they grew up with of someone who is a pastor. And that's okay, it's, it's not very common. Now, I'm saying all of this because sometimes things aren't what we expect them to be. We, we all have preconceived ideas and, uh, and notions uh, and thoughts about the way that things are supposed to be based on our experiences in life uh, and our cultures and our backgrounds. We all see the world through a lens or a pair of glasses. Uh, it's called a worldview. And it's through that set of glasses that we begin to expect things to be a certain way in the world around us. And this has been true for all time. Different cultures and different religions have different sets of glasses on. And it's through those glasses that they interpret the world around them and the events around them. So today is Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And when we picture this scene, we see Jesus riding in on the back of a donkey. We see huge crowds of people laying branches on the road, people spreading their coats on the road ahead of Jesus as a royal welcome, kind of like rolling out the red carpet. And people are crying out, Hosanna. This is the day that we remember the people of Jerusalem finally recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come to save them. 
But in this moment, while everything seems to finally be coming together, there's a problem. And the problem is that the people were wearing a set of glasses that distorted their view so that they didn't see what was truly happening. They didn't understand what God was really doing before their very eyes. See, they were celebrating because they thought that this coming of Jesus meant they had a king who would finally drive out the Roman oppressions, pressures. And so they gave that king the welcome that he deserved as he rode victoriously into his capital city. But the problem is, the only thing that they had right was that he was the promised Messiah. In every other way, their expectations were completely off. And we know what happened when they finally discovered that he wasn't there to get rid of the Romans. Five days later, those same people were yelling for him to be crucified. You see, Jesus didn't fit their mold or their expectations. They wanted a warrior, but they got a king of peace and gentleness instead. He wasn't interested in a revolt against the authorities. His plans were way bigger than that. That may have been what the culture expected of their Messiah, but he was countercultural. Jesus did not match the world's expectations, and we should strive to follow his example. So let's read this story. We're going to do the Matthew version. This is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. So when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anything says anything to you about it, you will say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately they will send the animals. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the roads, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowd going ahead, uh, this, the crowds going ahead of him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all of the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so we've been doing this study on prophecies, and this um, is kind of the last prophecy we're going to look at. Uh, so, because it's a bit of a different twist on the Palm Sunday sermon, uh, we need to look at some of the cultural things going on here uh, to get the full context and understand what's happening. Because... In the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, symbolism was really, really important. It wasn't just what you said that was important, but the way that you said them, the things you did when you said them, where you did things was important, and how you did things was really important. In the ancient world, these factors spoke just as loudly as the words they said. And so, obviously, understanding this symbolism 
the, the symbolism that's tied into these events is vital to understanding what's happening. So the first thing I want to do is talk about this donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, because he wasn't just tired of walking and looking for a break. Now, he certainly had come a long way. He'd walked all the way from Galilee in the north down to Jericho, and then up to the Mount of Olives, and then down to Jerusalem. But he only rode the donkey for that last part, from the, villi- from the village of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, and then down to Jerusalem. Now, this is the only time in Scripture that we have Jesus recorded as not having walked on foot. So it seems strange to borrow a donkey for such a short trip. And I, I kind of Google Maps this a bit to put it into PEI terms for us. So according to Google Maps, it's 190 kilometers from Galilee to Jericho, about 25 from Jericho to the Mount of Olives, and then 1.6 kilometers from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. So on PEI, that's like walking all the way from O'Leary to Surrey and then hitching a ride from Tim Hortons to the IGA. <laughs> so, obviously he didn't need to do that. If he walked all the way from O'Leary to Surrey, he's got a pretty good pair of legs. Um, he's been walking around his whole ministry, his whole life. He didn't do this because he was tired. The reason that he did this was to fulfill prophecy. And this is our final prophecy. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, to us in the 21st century, a donkey is kind of a weird animal to pick, to ride. Uh, But it wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East. And like I said, symbols are important. Very important. And in that day, the animal that a king or a dignitary would ride into a city on symbolized the reason for their visit. So if a king came in on a war horse, you knew that he was there with harsh words and possibly to declare war. But if he came in on a mule, it was a symbol that they came with peaceful intentions, not seeking war and not seeking trouble. Symbols are important. And the symbol, the donkey, was completely counter to the, what the people wanted from him. Because not only did the, the donkey connect to the mule, but it also was not a very kingly mount. See, a donkey also represented humbleness. So these people are in the crowd celebrating as he's, as he's coming into Jerusalem because they want a warrior to drive out the Romans, and they think he's finally arrived. But Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey, a symbol of peace of humility and gentleness. Symbols are important. We see this during King David's reign. So he was responsible for many wars with neighboring nations around the nation of Israel. And in our accounts on him, he usually rides on a horse. But he was not permitted to build the temple due to all the bloodshed. So so David wasn't permitted to build the temple Uh, due to all the bloodshed uh, that he had caused as uh, a conquering king. But God wanted his temple to be built by a man of peace. So David was a conquering king, so he couldn't build the temple because of all the bloodshed. God wanted his temple to be built by a man of peace. So 1 Chronicles, verse 22, 8, God says, You have shed much blood 
and have waged many great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So we see this picture of David as a conquering king. But Solomon was permitted to build the temple because his reign was one of peace. And during his coronation, he rides in on a mule, not a horse. So you can kind of see in the ancient Near East this example of how the animal that a king rode was symbolic of the reason for visiting somewhere, but also the kind of reign that they had. So going back to Matthew 21, the disciples go get this donkey and this colt on Jesus' orders. Now, obviously you can't just walk up to someone's home and start grabbing things and walking away uh, without you know, causing a ruckus or some trouble. That's true today, and that was just as true back then. You couldn't just take things from people. But Jesus says, well, just tell them the Lord has need of them, and it'll all be fine. So there's a few different perspectives on that. Some people think that Jesus prearranged these animals to be waiting for them ahead of time. Um, and some people believe that this was prophetically done, that uh, Jesus used his power as God to make it all work out for his purposes. Now, while we don't have a specific, explicit answer here as to which one is the case, obviously either could be true. Um, Jesus, as God, is well within his power to prophetically make these donkeys available to himself. Uh, and it also would not diminish from his power to have had it prearranged and have them waiting for him. But what's important about this, and what I want you to realize, is that this indicates that this was a plan Jesus had. He's doing this for a reason. It's just extra context to show there is a purpose to this. So the disciples go and get this donkey, this colt, and they bring them to Jesus. Jesus gets on, and they go down to the Mount of Olives, towards Jerusalem, where they encounter this crowd with the palm branches. Now, some of the crowd was there waiting for him and came out of Jerusalem. Some of the crowd had actually followed him all the way from Galilee down to Jericho and then back up. So he's a pretty popular guy. Now, when he gets to this crowd and goes through, they enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate, which leads right to the Temple Mount. And this is another place where we need to stop for a minute and talk about symbolism, because this eastern gate is significant. So if we jump backward in time about 600 years to Ezekiel verse 10 or chapter 10, there's this vision Ezekiel has when they're in captivity of the glory of God leaving the temple when the Israelites are sent into captivity. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them, and they stood still at the entrance of the east gate, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And it's a bit wordy after that. It is a vision. Um, but essentially what's happening is the glory of God is leaving the temple and leaves the city through the eastern gate. Then it goes up over the Mount of Olives and away to the east. And what's happening here is unique. Uh, some scholars have argued and interpreted this as God abandoning Judah to their sin and their eventual defeat by the Babylonians. And that is a part of it. But what's really happening here is God is going with them to Babylon in the east as they're taken into captivity. So even in their punishment and their exile, God is going with his people, which is really cool. But let's fast forward to Ezekiel 43, and this is where Ezekiel has another vision about this glory of the God coming back to Jerusalem. So it says, Here he led me to the gate, 
the gate facing towards the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And then skipping forward a couple verses, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So I know that's a lot of visions, but when Jesus enters Jerusalem through this eastern gate, it's extremely reminiscent of the Spirit of God coming back to Jerusalem after the exile. He follows the same path that the Spirit of God left in. He doesn't need to come in this way, riding a donkey symbolizing peace, through the gate that symbolizes the return of God's favor, but he does. And I'm not sure if you remember this sermon, it was a while ago, it might even have been one of my first sermons here, but at one point I'd mentioned that the Jews considered themselves to be in a spiritual exile. So even though they returned from exile physically in Babylon, they did not believe that their exile, that their return from exile would be complete until the Messiah had come to restore their place as a nation. So here you have Jesus riding a donkey through the gate that symbolizes God's returning favor to the nation of Israel. So he's checking off all these symbolic and prophetic boxes. So remember, symbolism is really important in this culture. So the, the crowd is getting excited. They're full of emotion. They're putting their coats and branches down on the road and crying, Hosanna, which I, I think, where, oh, she, maybe she's, she mentioned that, oh, there you are. Um, you mentioned that it, it means save us or savior. So this is a recognition Finally, that Jesus is the Messiah. They're crying for him to save them. And if Jesus had gone into the temple right then and declared himself king of Israel, right then, the nation would have been his. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't declare himself king of an earthly kingdom. No, what he does is he goes into the temple chases out all the money changers, and starts flipping over tables. In Matthew 22, it says that while he was flipping tables, he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. That certainly was not what anyone expected Jesus to do after he triumphantly enters Jerusalem as a king. But he does. That is what he does, because... Jesus wasn't there to overthrow the Romans. His plan was completely different than what the people were expecting of him. He didn't match their expectations. He didn't fit their mold. So let's take this classic Palm Sunday story and apply it to ourselves. What can we take away from this story that helps us to be more like Jesus, both as Christians in our individual walks, and as the church, together. So first of all, quite obviously, Jesus is countercultural. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So the people in Jesus' day were looking for a political answer to a spiritual problem. They were expecting a Messiah who was a warrior, who would lead them to freedom from the Romans, but Jesus was countercultural. They would want him to say or do one thing, and he would often say and do the opposite. They asked, 
for assurances and clarification about laws and rules, but he would take it up a notch and say, no, it's about your heart. That's what all of this is about. Everything he said and did was countercultural, and the Jewish leaders hated him for it. And once the people realized that he wasn't going to fit their mold, once they realized he was not there to bring them freedom from the Romans, they hated him for it too. And in the same way, we cannot fit the mold of the world around us. Our entire belief system is countercultural, especially today. Just as one example, um, in the 21st century, this postmodern world, the idea that truth is absolute is countercultural. People, people will say things like, oh, well, that's your truth, but I have mine, and that's okay. But no, as Christians, we know that there's only one way and one truth and one life through Jesus. Now, I do think it's important that we not pretend that we're um, separate from the world because we're morally superior. Because at the end of the day, we're all sinners. And none of us are perfect. And that's something we haven't been good at historically as the church. We have to remember that the only thing that makes us different from the world around us is that we have accepted the forgiveness that is available to anyone who wants it, allowing the Holy Spirit in to change our lives. We're not here of our own merit. And sometimes we have to be reminded of that. We're not better. We did nothing to earn the salvation that we now enjoy. But because we've accepted that forgiveness, because we have been given that salvation, we are also no longer a part of the world. We can't be. We have to be different. We can't be the same as the world anymore. We are called to be counter-cultural. The second thing, Jesus was not willing to compromise God's will. Now, we know that Jesus was fully God, but we also know that he was fully human. He experienced the fullness of all that we experienced. He knew what awaited him at the end of the week. The night before he died while he was praying in the garden, he was so physically tormented at the thought of what was to come that he literally sweated tear, or drops of blood. He was God, but he was also human. He submitted to God's will, but he was terrified. Crucifixion was at the time the most painful method of execution that we were able to come up with. It was, as much science as there was then, engineered to cause the most pain and the most torment for the longest period of time. On Palm Sunday, he could have assumed the throne and become a human king and avoided the cross by fulfilling the culture's expectation of him. But he doesn't do that because he's also fully God. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus said to Peter, do you think I cannot call my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? He had full power to do that, but he doesn't do it. Even though he was terrified at what was to come, he submits to God's plan. He's unwilling to compromise it even slightly. We see in Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus prays us to God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Remember, he's fully human. He's saying, God, if there's any other way to do this, please do it. But if there isn't, I submit to your will completely. 
I think we can all agree that the challenges that we face in life pale in comparison to the challenges that he faced. Like Jesus, we should be unwilling to compromise when it comes to his will for our lives and for his church. And then third and finally, Jesus was about peace. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know when to be tough. Right after riding in on this donkey, this symbol of peace, he goes into the temple and starts flipping tables. It's actually one of my favorite scenes in the Gospels. But at the same time, he doesn't use force to advance the kingdom of God. And this is something that Christians have gotten wrong for thousands of years of crusades and inquisitions. All through the New Testament, both through the life of Jesus and throughout the letters written by the apostles, humility and submission are what is preached. It is because of Jesus' humility and because of his submission that he is given the name above all names. It is because of his submission and humility that he has the ultimate victory. Philippians 2, 5-7 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And in the garden, when Jesus was being arrested, Peter hauls out a sword and cuts off one of the ears of the people that arrest him. And Peter's, he says to Peter, put your sword away, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then finally, consider the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are to imitate Jesus in all that we do, and that's what it looks like. Whatever is happening around us, whatever state the world is in, this is the model we are called to follow. We are to be a people of peace and humility. So in conclusion, Jesus did not match the world's expectations of the Messiah. They wanted a warrior, and on Palm Sunday, they gave him the welcome of a king, praising him and crying, Hosanna, please save us. They wanted a revolt. They wanted a king to come and free them from oppression. But Jesus came on a donkey, a symbol of peaceful intentions and humbleness. He wasn't there to overthrow the government. He was there to fulfill prophecy. I want to share the second part of this week's prophecy, which I've actually held back until now, because it's a great conclusion to all of this. Zechariah 9 verse 10 says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is what Jesus came to do. The exact opposite of what they were looking for. The praise given to him on Palm Sunday was deserving. When the Pharisees come and tell him, hey, you should tell your disciples to stop this, he says, if they don't cry out, the very stones on the road will. He's deserving of this praise and this welcome. But he came to do the exact opposite of what they expected of him. He didn't come to start a war. He came to end one. 
If you remember our very first prophecy in Genesis, when a war was declared on humanity, this is the end of it. He came to end a war long ago that began the Garden of Eden. He came to bring peace to the world. He didn't fit the mold of the culture. He didn't meet their expectations. And he wasn't willing to compromise God's plan to do so. So as we head into this Passion Week, let's consider the example that Jesus left for us. Peace, not war. Love, not hate. Humility, not aggression. And it's my hope and my prayer as we leave today that we can all strive to live up to this example that Jesus has called us to follow. I'll close in prayer. Father God, as we look back and we remember this triumphal entry of your Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, we thank you for this wonderful gift that you've given us that we did not deserve in any way. We just ask that as we go through our lives and as we look forward to the Easter weekend and remember the importance of this sacrifice and the resurrection that you would just be in our hearts working and that you would allow us to be a light and a beacon to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.